Good morning, church. If you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, and we will be reading a lengthy section. Uh, If you must sit down, I understand, but if you can stay standing, that would be great. Uh, We will be reading chapter 1, verse 1 through 2, verse 4. Our sermon will focus on the first four verses of each chapter, but we will read the entire section to place it in its proper context. I know it may not seem like a typical Christmas passage, but bear with me. This is all among family, so I I ask for your indulgence this morning. Reading from Hebrews chapter 1, I'll be reading primarily from the New American Standard Version. After speaking long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they also will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders, and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Let's pray. Father, we come to your word this morning, and left to ourselves, Lord, we are quite insensitive to these things, and I pray that you would open our ears, open our minds, give us hearts of flesh, Lord, that would just hear and receive from you today as we consider this, your speech to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Pardon me. Back in 1975, a man named Gary Dahl, D-A-H-L, not that it matters, but he came up with a great marketing idea. And he decided after listening to a bunch of 
people with pets, complaining about how difficult it is to take care of their pets, he came up with the ideal pet. And he decided he was going to sell pet rocks. Anybody ever have a pet rock? I did not. I saw pet rocks. Pet rocks come in a little box with air holes bored into it, a little bit of straw and an instruction manual. And these rocks came from a specific beach down in Mexico where Gary Dahl found what he thought was the ideal pet rock. And it became very popular for six months. Six months for Christmas in 1975. It was the go-to gift. And it tapered off very quickly after that when people realized after spending four bucks that all they had was a rock. But Gary Dahl became a millionaire. You know, a million and a half rocks he sold in six months at $4 a piece in 1975. I think that's fascinating. I had an idea. Mine's not quite as friendly, doesn't give the warm fuzzies. I want to sell pet peeves. Now, you may think everybody has a pet peeve, but, but these are not pet peeves for you to keep and to cuddle with, and they don't look like smooth, cute, and cuddly rocks. Rather, they look more like a sand spur. And they're irritating because pet peeves are irritating. So the next time that you're driving in traffic and someone cuts you off, because I'm sure many of our pet peeves are related to traffic, especially this time of year, you know, wouldn't it be great to just GPS that person and send them a pet peeve that represents poor drivers? I think that would. I have all kinds of pet peeves. I have this morning, really bothering me, though you can't see it, dress socks that will not stay up. <laughs> and so when I get home, I'm going to get rid of one of these peeves. And I think I'm going to throw out my socks. Now, I have other pet peeves, uh, but I can get carried away because I'm a cynical, critical person. So let me just say, related to Christmas, one of my pet peeves, not just Christmas, but Christmas, Easter, the church in general. I mean, we're in a culture in decline. We're in a culture that takes the things of God and treats them as if they are not what they are. You know, and, and especially, I was driving on the way to church this morning, and I was just struck by how many people weren't. High point of the Christian festival, the Christian calendar, would be maybe the festival of Christmas and Easter. And I saw more people worried about exercise out running on the sidewalks rather than going somewhere. We live in a county of 150 churches, give or take. If every church here had 100 people, and many do not, we're talking 15,000 people out of a county of 130,000 people, the church is not regarded as valuable. That's a pet peeve of mine. And people that, that take Christmas and they comfort themselves somehow by at least acknowledging the baby in the manger, but that's about it because, see, he's unthreatening. <laughs> that's a pet peeve of mine. There's just more to it. Than that, And so this morning, as I was considering, again, the opportunity to preach, and I learned something this year about the problem that pastors have maybe preaching a Christmas message every year, because after all, it's the same text, right? Um, well, I had the opportunity to preach this last year. So this year I was considering other things, and I just kept coming back to this. And so this does not deal specifically or focused on the baby in the manger, but it does deal with Christmas because it deals with Jesus, and it deals with God's speech in his son, because it says God has spoken. So that's where we're going to spend our times of meditation this morning. God has spoken. You'll see this in verse 1. Um, it depends on your, your translation. Uh, after speaking long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, God has spoken in his son. That is the heart of the text. No matter what your translation says, God has has spoken, is actually the heart of the text here. God has spoken. It is the only 
subject and verb in this entire lengthy complex sentence. God has spoken. And then he adds to it, God has spoken in his son. And there's much significance we can draw out of it. But really, I had a hard time getting past God has spoken. God has spoken. I remember back in the 80s, there was an uh, investment firm. I think it was E.F. Hutton. Commercials were on TV. People in a crowded airport talking about basic you know, money management or whatever. And says, well, my broker is so-and-so. And the other guy says, well, my broker is E.F. Hutton. And everything goes silent. Because when E.F. Hutton speaks... Everybody listens. Okay? God has spoken. Who's listening? You know, are God's people even listening? And I don't mean to lay that on you as a guilt trip. I look to myself first. God has spoken. Now, what is being talked about here is not primarily uh, general revelation. For those of you who enjoy theology. I love the idea of general revelation, but that is God's ongoing speech in his creation. So when you walk out of your house in the morning and you see a tree or you notice the weather and you see all these patterns, you look around at God's creation and you say, there is a God. And we see this in Psalm 19 and Romans 1, his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature are clearly seen through what has been made so that men are without excuse. And so in that, God is speaking. But here, God has spoken. And this is referring primarily to the written word of God. And that ought to be enough said. And I really spent a week deciding whether to preach just God has spoken. Because really, if we took the time to meditate upon that, how many people really give that significance it deserves? God has spoken. Do you realize what a condescension that is for God to have taken the time out as he hovers over or lives independent of, yet not uninvolved with, a world in darkness because of the rebellion of sin. You know, this whole idea of general revelation, God speaking, is enough to condemn us because we have not even acknowledged him as the creator that he is. And yet, God did not leave the world lay in darkness. God went further. The speech of God, the written revelation of God, is God's mercy to a creation that has turned its back on him and often still turns a deaf ear, and yet God has spoken. And really, we could almost end there. So I'll give a few moments of silence. You can ponder that. God has spoken. Let's talk about God's speech. Let's go a little further. It says that he spoke, or after speaking, long ago to the fathers in many portions and in many ways. And what does this refer to? Well, this refers primarily to the Old Testament. And the Old Testament itself, face it, it can be confusing, can it not? The Old Testament seems much more distant from us. It seems much more like a further away world and culture than us. And so we have a hard time understanding what do all those stories have to do with anything. And not only that, we see that God did not always speak. As we've gone through a study of the women's refuge here in the last few months of Genesis, um, it's really... It's really impressed upon me how little God spoke. You know, you realize when God called Abraham, said, go to the land I will show you, Abraham probably didn't have another word from God for who knows, 25 years? You know, I remember growing up thinking, if only God would speak to me, like he did to the Old Testament. Well, he really didn't. It was rare. It was sporadic. It was spread apart. And it was sometimes confusing. Though God may show up and give a direct 
command to Abraham, for instance, go and possess this land that I will give you. You know, he just as often may show up and give a dream and a vision, and the people who receive it are thinking, what was that? And so the Old Testament revelation at times, and to some people, could seem very fragmented. It would seem maybe incomplete. It was maybe partial. It was given possibly in dreams, you know, sometimes visions. God communicated to Moses and gave the law. There were theophanies where God himself, or at least some mysterious creature called the angel of the Lord, would show up and speak. And yet these things were done in various places and at various times and across centuries of time. And so it's fragmented, it's incomplete, it's partial, and it left, it left things wanting. However, I do not want to go so far as to, hear, as, as to have you hear me say that it was somehow unimportant or less significant because it's still God's speech. Okay, But it, but it, but it leaves us with almost like a jigsaw puzzle with pieces missing. And so you see, or you begin to see the picture, but it just isn't quite complete, and it's not quite in focus, and it's not there, but it's still God's speech. And what do we do with that? We dare not neglect it. God's speech, Old, New Testament, is not divided. We simply don't go to the Old Testament and say, that was then and the New Testament is now, because this is all God's speech, and there is a unity to all that God does, because he himself is not divided. He himself is not a God who at one time spoke in one way, and that was for a different people, and it's not for you. It's still relevant. We believe in the unity of the Scriptures, but we do acknowledge that in various times and at various places, God has communicated in various ways. And so what was fuzzy or incomplete or hard to understand then grows, grows and takes on greater clarity and more significance until the time when God, which we will see in a moment, has spoken again. I like to describe the Word of God, trying to understand the Word of God, really is, is I like to stress its unity, but we would also have to say that the unity is not, is not like all the same thing. You know, if you take a piece of chalk, for instance, and you break that piece of chalk, what is each part of that? It's chalk. Right? It's all alike. It's all of a uniform substance, and the Word of God is not like that. It is not all one thing. There are varieties there, but that does not mean that they are disparate parts or pieces that do not somehow go together. So instead of a piece of chalk, it has a unity that's more like an acorn to a tree. You know, within that acorn, basically, is all the genetic code or whatever for what will become some mighty oak tree. That's the Word of God. And so as it grows and as it progresses into the revelation that God has given, it does change in appearance, but it's not disconnected. And so as we go further through the Bible, we, we should expect that at some point, We will come to a completion or a finality. And so God has spoken in the past, after speaking long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions, in many ways. But in these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son. God has spoken to us in his Son. So now what? What has happened? What has God said? You'll have to forgive me while I find my... I think I jumped around quite a bit. God's speech in his son. First of all, it's clearly, clearly presented here as superior in some ways, but not superior as if the old was no good. Rather, it becomes the capstone. It becomes the fulfillment. It becomes... 
it becomes that which you need to see the whole. You remember also back in either the 80s or 90s when NASA sent up the Hubble Space Telescope, right? And I remember the first pictures that got beamed back down from the Space Telescope. And, you know, we're thinking, well, this, this is great. This is an advance. We're going to see all of the cosmos more clearly than we ever have. But the first ones that came back were all fuzzy and blurry. Right? We're thinking, that's nice. That's nice. We just spent millions of dollars to send a space telescope up there, and all we got were fuzzy pictures. So another mission was planned, and the space shuttle was sent once again. And I remember watching the videos as they sent out this little arm, and they snatched that space telescope and brought it back into the shuttle and applied to it like a new set of lenses, made some adjustments, set it back out in orbit on its way, and it began then looking out there and beaming pictures back home again. And what a difference it made. And some of the pictures we have seen, the photographs we've seen of deep space, things we've not taken pictures of before, have such a clarity, have such a grander vision, have such detail to it, that there's, it's connected to what went on before, but now it has been made right. It has been brought into clarity. It has been communicated better. So in that sense, the communication, God's speech in his son, is superior to the old because the speech of God in his son clarifies, puts into proper focus all that has gone before, all that God has done, all that God has communicated. So now the jigsaw puzzle, when you plug in God's speech in his son, his communication, his ongoing revelation, but focused on the person of Jesus Christ, now the jigsaw puzzle is completed. And we can see more of what God has done. And it's a glorious thing. It's a glorious thing. The speech of God in his son. We have to look at a couple different things. It's, it's, it's great because it brings everything into focus. It's great because the agent of the revelation is superior to the agent of Old Testament revelation. You know, here we talk about really angels. Uh, they mention prophets and angels. The word prophets here is not just the prophets of the Old Testament, but really is probably referring to the Old Testament as a whole. Uh, in a more general sense. Um, and then they talk about angels who are ministers and whom God used. Are they the agents of revelation, primarily in the Old Testament, whether it be dreams or visions or appearances? And so those, the Son, though, now is the Son of God himself. And in comparison to those, the agency through which God has continued to reveal himself is so much greater. We see the divinity of the Son in our verses in chapter 1. Uh, Verse 2, he has in these last days spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. I don't know exactly how that works with God the Father and God the Son all involved in creation, but for Christ himself to be involved in creation or the agent through which God created makes him equal to the divine. goes on in verse 3, says, And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. The radiance of his glory, this is just the, the, the clearer vision of who God is in the person of Christ and the exact representation of his nature. That's an interesting word because it's almost like a stamp. It's almost like an engraving in metal. It's almost really like the image that Nebuchadnezzar would set up on the plane of him trying to display his glory. And it was supposedly a faithful representation of Nebuchadnezzar. So Christ is a faithful representation of the Father. You take all these things together... And it makes sense when Jesus says, anybody who has seen me has seen the Father. Okay, because God has spoken in his Son, and so part of Christ's mission is to make the Father known, to reveal the Father in ways that before we did not see, including the whole idea of calling him our Father, which may not have been 
quite as common to the Old Testament saints. So the agent himself is better. He is divine, but he is also human. When you look at verse 3, Verse 3b, when he had made purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he had inherited a more excellent name than they. So he is human. We see him here being spoken of in his messianic nature, that is in his human nature. So when the God, the second person of the Godhead, takes on flesh and becomes incarnate in a baby, he is a human and he fulfills the role of the long-awaited Messiah to where he comes and offers himself as a sacrifice for sins. He says, when he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better. Jesus himself was not somehow lower than the angels, except in his humanity, and then because of his obedience to the Father, he was made greater than, having become as much better than the angels. So it is true of him, what is true of him as a human is true of him as a person, and so the God-man himself is a unique agent of speech, and he is even greater than what has come before. And then this whole passage of 5 through 14, which I will not read again, just makes, makes the case that Christ, as the agent of revelation, is also greater than the angels themselves. The angels here are actually classified as ministering spirits set out to render service. And yet even the angels are said to worship the Christ. The speech of God, the superior speech of God, is all wrapped up in his Son. And the Son, Jesus himself, is uniquely qualified as the one and only God-man to make God known and to accomplish his work. And then the latter speech is also superior because it is ultimate. It is ultimate. It is somewhat final in the spoken communication. It says We see this in the text as well, in these last days. These are not the last days as in the last, last day when Christ returns, but these are the last days as in the sense of the very ending of all the days that had come before where God had spoken. Now God has spoken. And this is the final and the ultimate revelation of God in these last days. So it's the last day seen in a succession rather than as something separated from. Now, if I've lost you, if you don't care, <laughs> come on back. Let me just take a moment and regroup. Come on back. Because I want to justify what I'm saying from the text, so we have to dig into the text and show you where it's coming from. But what I want you to hear is the message of God's speech. Not that he has spoken. Not who is the mediator of his speech, important as that is. But what is the content of the message of this baby born in the manger? What is the content? What is the heart of it? It's the message. This message of God's speech is this, that the Son of God, in this, the Son of God, there is salvation. God couldn't, he could have ignored a creation that had turned its back to him and continues to turn a deaf ear to him, but he did not. He spoke and he sent his son. But the content, the root of the matter, is the message of salvation. We see this in chapter 2. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? We see this in chapter 1, verse 3. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And in the book of Hebrews, it goes, it goes further if we go through the whole book, it unpacks the whole thing. But it is the message of salvation, and this salvation is in his Son. So we don't come to Christmas and we simply separate out this image of a baby in a manger, but rather when we look at him, we should also see the man on the cross. 
We should also see the man crucified, dead, and buried, and then ascended into heaven, sitting on God's right hand. We see the Christ event. We see the whole picture. And it's significant it is, is that God sent his son to bring salvation to a world that lay in darkness. It is this message, salvation. The word salvation itself is interesting. It's simply its root meaning means to be snatched from peril <laughs> by force if necessary. It is something that is done to you, to be snatched from peril. And it's also the other side of that. The other side of the coin would be to be made secure. Be taken from a place of danger, whether you are insensitive to it or not, and to be placed in a position of security. And this is done in the Son, when he had made purification for sins. That's another way that Christ completes the Old Testament, because all the sacrificial system that they had to bring over and over and over again, yet Christ completed, and Christ did in a once-for-all transaction, so that in him the sins of his people are all paid for. When he made purification for sins, he sat down. There's a completed work. If I go to chapter 10, verse 11, it says that every priest, speaking of the Old Testament, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. You see the repetitive nature here. See the ongoing, the over and over, and then the contrast. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand. This completed work is the message of Christmas. This completed work is the message, the speech of God in the Son. It is the message of salvation in the Son of God, which completes the picture, the puzzle, which focuses the picture. And I want to give you an example. Just one example. I could do this all morning, just so you know. I love this. When we go to look at the scriptures, we talk about a unity, but we talk about a diversity built within the unity and everything. You can trace these threads of ideas from the beginning of the scriptures, which don't necessarily make sense, but which come into clearer focus as we go and then take, come to fruition in the person of Christ. So, we talk a lot about Genesis 3.15. You know, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Seed is an interesting idea to follow through the scriptures. You have the seed of the woman who will someday come to crush the head. Of the serpent. And then we have the promise given to Abraham that somehow in your seed, someday all the world will be blessed. And yet, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, none of them were the seed, simply the promise that one day a seed would come. And so when the Lord Jesus shows up, who is he? Who does the New Testament represent him as, especially in the book of Matthew, but the seed of Abraham, the seed of David? You know, and then the genealogy in Luke, he is also the son of, the seed, the descendant of, all the way back through Noah, back to Adam, the son of God. He is the seed. He is David's seed, not just Abraham's, because David was promised that one would come from you who would rule on the throne of God forever and ever and ever. He, this is God's speech in Christ. He completes it. He fulfills it. It's the message of salvation that has been being pointed to, and he's the central figure of the scriptures, and of this whole story of Christmas. Let me give one more example because I just love this stuff. Love this stuff. The shepherd. The whole idea of shepherd. Shepherd. Do you realize that the first mention of shepherd in the Bible doesn't use the word shepherd, but Abel, the son of Adam and Eve, who was a keeper of livestock and who brought the better sacrifice to God. And by doing so, by the way, he shows himself to be a person of faith, and so he is in the line of the seed of the woman who would one day result in the seed. So there's an overlap of themes here, but there's a shepherd. Abel is the keeper of livestock. As we go through Genesis, the patriarchs, all of them, 
are shepherds. When Joseph goes and introduces his family during the time of Jacob to Pharaoh, he says, tell them that you are a shepherd. And Jacob, though, is the first one to refer to God in the sense or using shepherd imagery because when he is speaking of God, he says, the God who has been my shepherd throughout my life until now. Later on, we see that the priests of the Old Testament in the land of Israel are referred to as shepherds. We see David, who himself was literally taken from the flocks from watching over as a shepherd, and he was told that he would be made king and he would shepherd God's people Israel. But later on in the history of Israel, trouble comes. And the shepherds are no longer doing their job. In fact, they're abusing the sheep to profit themselves. And so we see in Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34 where God tells the prophet, you go and tell the shepherds, I've had enough and I will remove them. Their place will be taken away from them. And then comes the promise, but I myself will come and shepherd my people. Fast forward hundreds of years. And Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. And what does the shepherd do? But he comes to lay down his life for the sheep. It culminates in the message of Jesus Christ, and it culminates in the message of salvation through him as he comes to save his people from their sins. See the picture come into focus? And in that sense, because of the brilliance of the picture, because of the completeness of the picture, when God has spoken in his Son, it is a superior, though not disconnected, message. There's so many more. There are so many more. We could go on and on and on. Trust me. We could go on and on and on because he, Jesus, the Son of God in whom God speaks, is the Lion of Judah. That comes from Genesis. He is the greater prophet, the prophet greater than Moses who would one day come. He is the Passover Lamb. And what did John the Baptist say when Jesus showed up? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is the typical hero from Judges. He's the greater Samson. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah, the son of man from the prophet Daniel's visions. He is a shoot from Jesse's stem. He is the one who will go forth from Bethlehem to save his people. See the picture? Hear God's speech and be amazed at what God has done. It is no little thing. It is not just a little baby in a manger. And so how would a reasonable person... Respond to all this. How should a reasonable person respond to all this? Problem is, is we, left to ourselves, are not very reasonable. We're insensitive. Our ears are closed to the speech of God. We do not want to hear it. But let me give you the same exhortation that the writer of Hebrews gives this morning, starting in chapter 2. For this reason, it, we must pay much closer, let me say it right, For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. There is a a stacking up of adverbs here to intensify the command. We must, for this reason, another way, it is necessary for us to pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift. So that we do not drift. This word for drift just talks about a slipping away. This word for drift could also mean being washed away. You could picture a boat tied to its dock out here in the river, but as you know, someone comes along and cuts the line and then the tides change, what happens to the boat? It just drifts away. It's something that happens to it when it is no longer secured to a mooring. And the word of God, the speech of God, the speech of God in his son related to salvation is what is to be an anchor to you, an anchor for your soul. 
And we are told that we must pay much closer attention to it so that we do not drift. It's hard. It is hard. I am grateful for the opportunity to preach this morning, for the opportunity to be at the Women's Refuge. You know why? Because I am so lazy. But if I have an obligation, (laughs) if I have an appointment, then I will study the Word of God. So many times I have wanted to go off on vacation and think, hey, this would be great. I'll spend two weeks reading, praying, relaxing, spend time with my family. Guess which two of those get left out as soon as my schedule changes? Reading, praying. We must pay much closer attention lest we drift. There is such, such great reward in digging deep into the speech of God. But are you hearing them? He goes on, he adds a threat. (laughs) For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How will we escape? Now, I do want to, you know, when some people hear that, some believers hear that, it's not my purpose to shake a believer today who is struggling with a sense of assurance. This passage is not talking about you losing your salvation. You know, Jesus himself is very clear in John 10. uh, You know, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out, and nothing can snatch them from my hand. And the Father who is greater than me, nothing can snatch them from his hand. Okay, Romans 8, there's Romans 5 and 8. There's no condemnation. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, your Lord. There is nothing you can do. I'm not talking lose your salvation. This is simply... God speaking through the writer, using the carrot and the stick, showing you the great reward and telling you to go after it. And at the same time, don't neglect it, (laughs) because there's danger back there. That's what God is saying to you today. We ought not neglect it. We should pay much closer attention to it. But I do think there's one more group of people he's talking to, and I think this carries out through the book of, Revelation, book of Hebrews as well, especially like in Hebrews chapter 6, where everybody's confused. Is God talking about, can those people lose their salvation? That's a whole other sermon. I can't speak on those issues of assurance. But the second group that I believe the author is addressing today are people who are in the church, but really not of it. Really not of it. And I think that really is kind of appropriate on a day like Christmas and Easter. And not wanting to offend anybody. Not wanting to offend, trust me. (laughs) Don't want to offend. But there are some people who will show up at church on Christmas and Easter as if they've done their duty for the year. But yet they've never really closed the deal. They've never really come to God in a heart of repentance and saying, I need something. And recognizing that God's provision for that need that you feel is in the person, is in this baby in the manger. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ, who when he had made purification for sin, sat down as a completed work. And he offers you this salvation. And so I think there are people among the church who are not of the church who really need to hear the speech of God this morning because God is speaking. God is speaking. So today, do you hear his voice? People of God, he is calling you to just a greater communion with himself so that we do not drift. There is so much to be gained. There is so much peace. There is so 
so much assurance, so much comfort, so much, for me, intellectual satisfaction that I needed in the gospel. And he offers it. And he offers the means. And he says, come hear my voice in this, this word. And if you're in the second group today, do you hear his voice? Maybe he's calling you too. All day long he speaks. He speaks. When the word of God is preached, and as much as it is faithful to the word of God, it is God speaking. And today I call you in the name of Christ to turn from your sins and trust him. Hear the speech of the Lord. God has spoken. There is salvation in his son. Today do you hear his voice. Don't harden your hearts. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this, your word. Because through it we know you. And this word tells us about your son who is the one sacrifice for sins. The one sufficient sacrifice for sins. And anybody who will turn from their sin and turn to him, the Lord Jesus, will be saved. So Lord... Open stopped up ears today. Soften hardened hearts. And speak your word to your people. And cause us to hear. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.